It's the 11th of February, 2018, and this is episode 355 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Peter Van Valkenburg, Director of Research at Coin Center. Peter, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Adam. So in the beginning, there was Bitcoin, then there were altcoins, then there were tokens, and then there were ICOs or initial coin offerings. And in the world of crypto, many people think of all these things as kind of the same thing. But increasingly, though, it seems like they might be really different indeed. Recently, the head of the Commodities Future Trading Commission and the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, two regulatory bodies in the United States, testified in front of lawmakers, and this question was kind of a central point. Peter, can you lay out for the listeners the difference between a token which is a security and a token which is not? Yeah, no problem, actually. It's not an easy topic, but there is a clear answer. The answer is that there is a flexible test that's been in existence for about 70 years now for what is a security and what isn't a security, and it's the Howey test from the case by the same name. And what that test says is we're looking for a situation. A security will exist in a situation where you have an investment of money in a common enterprise with an expectation of profits dependent on the efforts of a third party or promoter. And so you can kind of start to think about how that interacts with cryptocurrencies, with altcoins, with token sales or token generation events, which is a crazy new word I've heard, (laughs) or, or, or ICOs indeed, because In all these situations, you have varying levels of um, investment, like maybe there's no investment, maybe like with Bitcoin, people kind of invest, but really they just dedicate computing resources to the network. And that's how they get the tokens originally. It's not really like you handed your money to somebody. In fact, there's really no buddy on the other side, you know, it's a protocol. And then there's situations like an ICO on the other side of the extreme where obviously there's investment. There's somebody out there saying like, we're going to build this new decentralized network or we're going to build this app coin and you're going to give us money and we're going to give you the token and then in two years it'll work. And so that part of the prong can be broken down with respect to our community. The other prongs like expectation of profits can be broken down. So some people might want Ethereum because they're really excited to try out a brand new a decentralized virtual machine, which is one way of describing Ethereum. And I think a lot of people in the Ethereum community actually felt that way. They also maybe wanted to make a buck off of it, but they were usually pretty technical Bitcoin type folks who were, wanted to try something new and liked Vitalik's and thing like, things like that. On the other hand, there's plenty of people, especially like this past summer, who don't know anything really about cryptocurrency. <laughs> um, and they're listening to Floyd May- Mayweather on Instagram or Twitter And they're saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to have a big pile of money on a table in my airplane, too. And I'm going to get it by investing in this thing. At that point, your desire or your expectation for the token is almost exclusively getting rich and hardly at all use value. So that's another prong you can break down. Is there an expectation of profits? Is that the dominant really motivation behind purchasers or not? And then the last prong that you can break down with respect to our technology is uh, reliance on the efforts of a third party or promoter. You know, Bitcoin is the extreme example of we really don't rely on any centralized party. You know, we, we rely on the miners to some extent, but they're all over the world and they're kind of performing a rote and automated task, validating signatures, making new blocks. Sure, we rely on the developers, but there's 333 unique uh, developers who've contributed to the GitHub core repository last time I checked. And yeah, some of them are bigger contributors than others, but this is not the kind of reliance 
that we normally see in the securities uh, context. Like we rely on um, Jeff Bezos <laughs> to make an, a share of Amazon valuable, like truly, really rely on him. And we rely on their corporate structure. Like if I show up with a stock certificate and they're like, sorry, that's not a, that's not our stock certificate anymore. We changed our mind. That's I'm, I'm SOL at that point. Um, whereas if I show up with a Bitcoin uh, and I can, you know, use, uh, you know, I can sign that I control that address uh, or actually just sign in order to make a payment, that's it. That I don't need somebody else to validate that I had that or that, that there's value there. The market values that thing that I'm capable of doing on its own without anyone else's promise. Like long-winded answer, but like there's this flexible test and it applies. And it applies actually in a sensible way, I think. So when we're talking about the Howey test, this situation is very clearly not black and white, right? There are very much shades of gray and even kind of the extreme example that you gave of Bitcoin has some of the characteristics that would make something a security. So what is it that's different about Bitcoin? So you're, you're, we're talking about decentralization, I guess, here. You, how much decentralization is required for something not to be considered a security? Or is it really just about collecting money? Yeah, I think that's going to be the hard part. And some people say this is like a unique U.S. problem because we have this flexible case law. But it's not unique at all. Every jurisdiction across the world is going to come and grapple with this and they won't have this flexible case. They'll just have a regulator who gets to make a decision up or down. So I actually like that we have the flexible case because it puts everyone on notice about like what's sort of in and sort of out. And we can try and modulate our behavior to be as far out as possible by thinking about the relative equities. So when we're looking at projects in the space, I mean, really, which entity is being regulated by the Howey test? Which entity is, is yeah. that? Is it people who are buying these tokens or is it companies that are issuing these tokens and using them to fundraise? So the test is just whether the thing, the asset is a security or not. And if it is a security, there's this sort of like avalanche of consequential effects, which are worth thinking about. Some big things. Only registered national securities exchanges or alternative trading systems are allowed to trade securities. So no normal capital. exchanges as we think of them in crypto. Exactly. You'd have to get registered and, and regulated by the SEC, which would be a lot harder than getting a bunch of state licenses, probably, although it's not easy to get a bunch of state licenses. Another, another point, if you are identified as the issuer or promoter of the security, you have to issue all kinds of disclosures to your investors to make sure that they know like what they're getting into as far as like the prospectus, audited financials, all that kind of thing. And that could be a real problem with the decentralized cryptocurrencies because I really don't believe they fit the test for securities at all. Uh, I think even decentralized cryptocurrencies that may have started out with token sales like Ethereum today don't fit the test anymore. So it's yeah. kind of interesting that maybe these things can change. And the issue here is, is they don't fit the test. And if you try to force them into the test, who are you going to pick as the issuer? Who are you going to say you are on point? <laughs> you're the Bitcoin miner that we're going to say needs to make disclosures to the public. And if you don't make disclosures, you're in violation of the securities laws. It doesn't make sense. Contrast that with like modern ICOs uh, that we saw, you know, this past summer and, and to, to this day. There's obviously somebody and it's the, you know, it's usually, uh, it's often a, a centralized development effort in a corporate form like protocol labs. And they are issuing, you know, a promise of some sort of economic value. 
And I, I use Protocol Labs um, freely because I think they actually were very careful about this. And they decided, okay, look, until the network goes live, until there really is something out there that is a decentralized file storage and cryptocurrency network, we are really kind of a promoter and an issuer of some future revenue. Now, the token maybe isn't a security, the file coin, but this promise to deliver file coins, that's definitely a security. And so they actually complied with a safe harbor in our securities laws and, and only sold to accredited investors, which I know some people like buckle at this because they think, ugh, we're handing all of the future digital property that will make the internet work to a bunch of rich people in Silicon Valley. Um, and I think that might be uh, an accurate way of thinking about what, what the law is forcing here. Um, it's also making sure that Ma and Pa on Main Street, who have like a pension fund, don't invest at all in a highly speculative venture. Um, but it does have these, these inegalitarian wealth effects that, that could, you know, doom us to even further uh, wealth disparity as we move into, you know, the kind of crypto utopia that I think you and I and all our listeners believe in. Right. What I'm going to say about that is this. If you hate that, if that bothers the hell out of you, then you have common cause with everybody who thinks that securities laws, whether they deal with tokens or not, are not well targeted. They're not achieving good results or they have unintended consequences. And we should get together and change those laws then, not just for token people and not by trying to keep tokens out of securities laws when they obviously fit in. But by saying, look, we can do better than an accredited investor standard for investment protection, for investor protection. We could, we could do better than that. We could protect investors without creating these inequalities and these wealth effects. So one of my big takeaways from the uh, testimony we saw the other day, and which we're actually going to listen to almost immediately after our interview concludes here, um, awesome. was that, yeah, I actually found it really interesting. Um, I, I thought it was great, yeah. So we first started kind of getting the feeling that something was going to happen back in August when we got kind of the first set of meaningful guidance uh, that suggested that maybe all of these things were going to wind up looking like securities. And since then, we've seen a lot of projects that have kind of gone out of their way to do things to try and make it so that the token isn't a security, even though it's being used to raise money. And they do that with all sorts of different things to make it a utility token, stuff like that. It seems like from the testimony that that doesn't matter. So, I mean, is there a line where you actually can have a utility token or is the approach that Protocol Labs is taking where they're essentially doing um, a SAFT, which is a security vehicle, to yep. then allow them to pre-sell something that might or might not be a security, which is the resulting token when it finally works. Is that the way forward with uh, you know trying to pull something like this off legally? Or is it just if you raise funds with it and you're a centralized company, then it's a security? Yeah. So a few things. Um, you're right. The Dow report last August kind of set this off. We were thinking like, well, some of these things are securities, maybe all of them, maybe there's a way out. Um, I would say that actually a lot of people like lawyers in this space have been thinking about this all the way back to 2015. Um, we published our first securities framework back then and started educating the SEC about this point so that the SEC, when they came to this inevitably, and they did about a year and a half later, would be able to draw a distinction between at least Bitcoin and maybe a bunch of other things and things that are securities. Because if everything's regulated as securities, it's kind of game over. And it's also just bad policy because it doesn't make sense. So then with the Dow report, we finally have more of an authoritative statement from the SEC rather than just informal conversations about how they see this space. And they call Bitcoin and Ethereum in that report 
uh, virtual currencies. So it was it was kind of a very exciting moment for us at Coin Center because we thought, oh, thank God, you know, there are people there um, who we've been talking to who are now ready to come out and say, look, some things are not securities. Now they didn't say it that clearly. They said some things are virtual currencies and the DAO is a security. But regulators don't usually come out and say, we don't have power over this. You know, they usually come out and say, we have power over this specific thing. And the assumption is the thing they didn't say they don't have power over. Um, and then we move on to case by case. Um, they brought some enforcement actions against, say, uh, Munchie, which is a good example. They were going to do a Yelp app that had tokens for restaurant reviews and for booking tables. And they sold the tokens before the app was ready. And the SEC came out and said, look, this is not a functioning currency or utility token. This is a promise of some future ecosystem that will involve you making deals with restaurants to make this token valuable. And people are relying on your efforts and you're selling these tokens for money. It's a security. And I think that's reasonable, even though some people who had a really broad interpretation of this utility token argument, which honestly, Coin Center may be part of the original utility token argument in our framework from 2015. So I feel bad. Um, but people who've, had, who've taken it and stretched it beyond whatever I wanted it to ever cover said that was a utility token, though. It was for booking tables at restaurants. And the SEC is coming back and saying, no, no. No, you can't do anything with the Munchie token. It does not do anything today. All it does is serve as a marker to know who gets paid once this app launches and the ecosystem works well. And you get paid, yeah, and the ability to use the app, but you're getting paid, basically. You're getting a revenue stream from the efforts of the promoters. And then fast forward to the hearing. And again, I'm actually quite happy. Uh, Chairman Clayton, who has been very hot and cold about this technology. And I, I think I understand why. It's because the cold comes from the fact that the price shoots up during the beginning of his chairmanship and then collapses back in half. And people are raising millions of dollars in these ICOs. And he just doesn't want to be the guy who's on watch when the next Bernie Madoff thing happens. And the next Bernie Madoff thing happens to be you know, a cryptocurrency scam or something like that. It's totally reasonable for a regulator to fear that. But he comes out uh, in the hearing and he says, look, there are pure cryptocurrencies, which is a term I hadn't heard before, but I like actually like true or pure. We're going to have to figure out what exactly that is. And it's going to have to do with the Howey test, of course. He says there are those and then there are ICOs and we regulate ICOs and no one is the preeminent regulator of pure cryptocurrencies. He basically came out and said that they don't regulate Bitcoin, which is pretty great. Um, so. That's pretty exciting to me. Now the question is, which of these things that we were thinking of as utility tokens, which is a word I want to get rid of, actually, you know, personally, are really pure cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, Filecoin, to take another example, and also storage and SIA, so that I don't get you know, accused of being biased for one project or another, because we, we are coin agnostic. Those tokens are going to be real, or some of them are already real cryptocurrencies that are used for payment of storage and on a platform that will decentralize storage. You know, Filecoin so, isn't yet, um, but when they launch, in theory, it will be. And that makes it, for me, a pure cryptocurrency. Assuming the blockchain that describes the currency and all of the transactions is open consensus driven, assuming that there's open development of the software, so no proprietary code and at least a few people developing it who aren't within a centralized company. I think they fit in the pure cryptocurrency bundle. 
all of these projects are projects that raised money using a token, right? Uh, in the case of Storage or Saya, it was, um, I, I think Saya did an ICO. Uh, I think that it wasn't purely mined. Um, I'm not ex- exactly sure, but I know that Storage did um, yep. uh, did a token sale. So you're saying that uh, if that at the point that they did the token sale, if the platform didn't work, then that would have been a security. But then at the point that the platform actually does work, and this is useful within the platform, then it ceases to be a security, or it maybe ceases to be a security. Yeah, yeah. So that's 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 part of what I'm saying. I'm I don't want to be that definitive about the sale originally being a security. Um, and here's why. So we take a, a two prong defense here. We say, you know, first line of defense is especially those early sales. We're back in a day when the most of the buyers of the token, whether it was Ether or, or what have you, were pretty sophisticated individuals who may have been motivated in part by profits, but were also motivated because they wanted to use the tech. And that saves those early sales from being classified as securities issuance, whereas the sales probably that happened this past summer in general were securities issuance because they were to a bunch of Main Street type like retail investors who just happened to want to make money off this thing. So that's the first line of defense is the older sales, the culture was different. And this is a fact-based test. So even though culture sounds squishy, it's relevant in the fact-based test. The second line of defense is even if the original sale was a security, um, once the project went live, things changed and the token that resulted was not a security. So that doesn't mean even if even if even if we say that say the the SIA or the Ether presale was securities issuance, doesn't mean that today SIA coin or Ether are securities. And that means the collateral consequences of that of that deeming of the original sale being a securities issuance don't necessarily destroy the tech today. Um, people may suffer consequences or may have to apologize and say, I'll never do it again. Like the SEC has actually been good about settling with people and not imposing civil monetary damages uh, or penalties when it seems like there was good faith. Um, so maybe there'll be some penalties, but it doesn't mean that we'll end up in a world where, say, Ether or SIA or Storage or any of these things can only be traded on uh, licensed national securities exchanges in the future. And and only you know sophisticated investors can get a hold of them, and and that's important because if that was the case, then those networks, once they're running, would not run legally. Um, right. I think uh, I would have to think about the full collateral consequences, but I don't want to because it it also doesn't make sense to, to regulate those open networks as as securities. Well, so I um, I really appreciate your time on this, um, and I have one more question, which is basically just on enforcement, right? So now that we kind of know that a lot of the projects that launched in the last year probably were securities and almost none of them actually went through the kind of process in order to do this the legal way, I mean, what even can the SEC do about something like this? At a certain point, doesn't the problem become so big that it becomes problematic to actually address? Yeah, I mean, so there's no doubt that the internet has thrown a wrench in all kinds of expectations of what can be enforced. And this is nothing new. I mean, this happened with copyright law and file sharing. So this is just like a symptom of our times. And I think it kind of makes the world a little exciting, even though it probably makes some people's lives more hectic and, 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 and difficult. Um, so that's, that's the first thing I'll say. The second thing I'll say is I'm not certain that there are so many projects that fully ignored U.S. securities laws that they'll there'll be this sort of overwhelming um, uh, docket of enforced pending enforcement actions. I think there are a lot. I don't mean to say there aren't a lot, but there are a number that did the Reg D filing 
um, that Filecoin did and sold only to accredited investors. And some of the most, like, I think, um, serious projects. High profile, so, yeah. High profile, <laughs> exciting ones that, that, you know, might actually really have a chance of building really cool decentralized networks on the other end, uh, did, did it that way. And then a lot of people um, tried to tried to avoid having U.S. investors, um, and that could be fine then if you really robustly were careful about not having U.S. investors. And then the third thing I'd say is, even if a lot of these things did happen to be um, effectively on, on unregistered securities issuance, it's possible that the SEC says, look. Um, you know, we started with a report for a reason. We put everyone on notice. Um, we wanted to do that before coming out guns blazing with an enforcement action because that's kind of how the rule of law works. Like you should be told that something's illegal before being arrested right. uh, for that thing. That and makes so sense. maybe maybe the cutoff point is somewhere around the Dow or somewhere around Munchie or somewhere mm. around the testimony. Uh, and stuff before that, it doesn't get an official legal pass, but you know, enforcement has discretion. The SEC and the enforcement division, I've met people there, they're actually really good people. I mean, they have a lot of power and we all hope they use that power judiciously and responsibly, but they're actually a lot of good people there. They're not, they're not like monsters who wanna come out and, and hurt people. <laughs> so so maybe, maybe there's a cutoff point, maybe it's actually gonna spare a lot of people anguish from an enforcement. Peter is the director of research at coincenter.org. Thank you very much for your time. Today's show is sponsored by EZDNS.com. EZDNS first started sponsoring the Let's Talk Bitcoin show back in 2013, and they fall into the early libertarian adopters camp. In today's world, it doesn't really matter if you're running a blockchain startup or just have an opinion. You want a company who thinks your rights matter at an ideological level. And for my websites, that's EasyDNS. Oh, and for those of you already living in the future, you can pay your bill with Bitcoin or Ethereum. So when you're thinking domains, mail servers, or DNS provisioning, think EasyDNS.com. This morning we will receive testimony from SEC Chairman Jay Clayton and CFTC Chairman Chris Giancarlo on the growing world of virtual currencies and the oversight conducted by their two agencies. And welcome, gentlemen. Virtual currencies are meant to act as a type of money that can be traded on online exchanges for conventional currencies, such as dollars, or used to purchase goods or services predominantly online. Additionally, developers, businesses, and individuals are selling virtual coins or tokens through initial coin offerings, also known as ICOs, to raise capital. Over the last year, many Americans have become increasingly interested in virtual currencies, especially given the meteoric rise in valuation and recent fall of Bitcoin. Just for perspective, on January 2 of last year, Bitcoin broke the $1,000 barrier then peaked in December of 2017 at almost $20,000, and as of this morning, is trading at roughly $6,900. Today, the market capitalization of Bitcoin is roughly $115 billion. This is an incredible rise given that in 2013, 
when this committee had subcommittee hearings on the topic, the total value of Bitcoin in circulation was approximately $5 billion. As virtual currencies have become more widespread, financial regulators and heads of financial institutions have noticed and voiced their opinions. Regulators and heads of industry have tried to educate investors so that they make informed decisions and ensure that the markets they oversee and participate in are working appropriately. For its part, the SEC has put forth many statements and guideposts to help the markets and investors. Namely, the SEC has issued investor bulletins on initial coin offerings, issued an investigative report on what characteristics make an ICO a security offering, issued several statements by Chairman Clayton on the issue, brought enforcement actions against fraudsters, and issued joint statements with the CFTC about enforcement of virtual currency-related products. The CFTC has also been helping inform the markets by launching a dedicated website on virtual currencies to educate investors, bringing enforcement actions against individuals involved in cryptocurrency-related scams, issuing several statements by Chairman Giancarlo and others and other commissioners on the issue, and scheduling hearings on the topic. Much of the recent news about virtual currencies has been negative. Between the enforcement actions brought by your agencies, the hack of the International Coin Check Exchange, and the concerns raised by various regulators and market participants, there is no shortage of examples that increase investor concerns. It's also important to note that the technology innovation and ideas underlying these market markets present significant positive potential. These aspects underpinning virtual currencies have the ability to transform for investors the composition of and the ability to access the financial landscape, thus changing and modernizing capital formation and transfer of risk. Technology is forward-looking, and we look to our regulators to continue carrying out their mandates, including investor protection, as markets evolve. I look forward to hearing more and learning more about virtual currency oversight from our two witnesses today, including what their agencies are doing to ensure appropriate disclosures and safeguards for investors. Senator Brown. Thank you, Mr. Chairman Crapo, and I welcome to Chair Clayton and Chair Giancarlo. Uh, good to have you both here. Vir virtual currencies, Bitcoin specifically, have captured the attention of investors and speculators and computer programmers and regulators all over the world. I don't know how many people imagined how quickly and broadly Bitcoin and the technology it's based on would spread. It's nothing short. Uh, to most of us, it's nothing short of remarkable. To be sure, it's critical for our regulators to understand innovation and technology so that markets can grow and evolve while investors and consumers are protected. Understanding the risks of emerging technologies is no easy task, but we rely on you to maintain the integrity of these new markets and minimize the risks to Americans who want to participate in them. The volatility of Bitcoin has been also remarkable, defying attempts to think of it as a traditional currency. Bitcoin's 1,000% rise last year and 60% decline last month makes yesterday's Dow Jones record point drop look almost like a rounding error. But that growth has shown us the intersection of ingenuity and too often greed. Sometimes it appears that scam artists and hackers may understand more about the technology than most, uh, than most market participants. That should, that should concern all of us. 
I hope our witnesses today help us understand the evolution of the markets related to virtual currencies, raise awareness of the many threats involved, and identify the regulatory gaps. Each of you has made several public statements recently explaining the threats to investor protection and the potential to abuses for abuses in virtual currency markets. I understand neither the SEC nor the CFTC has sufficient authority to police all aspects of virtual currencies but you must make the most of the authority you have. As you both noted in the Wall Street Journal, Bitcoin mania has some analogies to the dot-com bubble of the late 90s. I hope there are lessons from that era you draw on to do your job to protect investors. In addition to the investment risk, virtual currency may be used to fund illicit activity, especially outside the United States. I know the regulatory framework in other countries, many other countries, is still in development. I'm pleased that the U.S. and FinCEN in particular has been a leader, but we can do more. I hope the chairman agrees with me the committee needs to look closely at the gaps in regulation in this area and to review our agency's ability to get ahead of the curve. As you begin to adapt to the unique enforcement of regulatory demands posed by virtual currencies, I call on both of you not to forget your day jobs, as Chair Clayton and I talked the other day, not to forget your day jobs to pursue and punish misconduct, more traditional misconduct, but very serious misconduct, wherever it might appear. That means Main Street. It also means Wall Street. I'm concerned it's business as usual when it comes to violations by the big banks. Just last week, the CFTC imposed penalties on three big banks for market manipulation. Good, but then decided those firms deserved waivers from bad actor provisions under the securities law. That might make sense if this were an isolated incident, but the banks in question have something like 68 violations over the last 10 years, so it's very, very serious. Too often we see big banks pay fines and move right along with little contrition and, frankly, no serious punishment. Recidivist violators won't stop breaking the laws if your agencies serve as sanctuaries. I've raised the issue of waivers over the years. I'm disappointed in your unwillingness to pursue every avenue available. It's clear that virtual currencies bring us into a new age, but that doesn't mean we overlook the basic principles of going after the bad guys and being tough when they are repeat offenders. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Brown. Now we will turn to the testimony of our witnesses, and first today we will receive testimony from the Honorable Jay Clayton, Chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Following him, we will then hear from the Honorable Chris Giancarlo, Chairman of the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission. And gentlemen, again, we welcome both of you here. appreciate you coming to uh, share your knowledge and understanding on this issue with us. And Chairman Clayton, you may proceed. Thank you. Uh, Chairman Crapo, Ranking Member Brown, uh, distinguished senators of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify before you today. On the important topic of cryptocurrencies, initial coin offerings, and related trading activities. The total market capitalization of all cryptocurrencies was estimated at $700 billion earlier this year. In 2017, ICOs, initial coin offerings, raised nearly $4 billion. These markets are local, national, and international. Today I will attempt to level set where we stand from a market regulatory perspective. My remarks may be viewed by some as overly simplistic, but they reflect how I present these issues to Main Street investors. For ease of analysis, I break this space into three categories. First, a promising new technology referred to as distributed ledger technology or blockchain. Proponents of this technology assert that it will bring great efficiencies to our national and global economies, including our capital markets. 
I hope that it does. And the Commission looks forward to working with market participants who seek to bring efficiencies, including more effective oversight, to our markets. The second and third categories are cryptocurrencies and ICOs, which are subsets of the products seeking to take advantage of the commercial opportunities presented by blockchain technology. One is promoted to be a replacement for dollars. The other is like a stock offering. Cryptocurrencies. Some of the more widely known cryptocurrencies were introduced as substitutes for traditional currencies, such as the US dollar or the euro. Those who promote these so-called virtual currencies have asserted they will make it easier and cheaper to buy and sell goods, particularly across borders. They have asserted that transaction and verification fees and costs will be eliminated or reduced. To date, these assertions have proved elusive in many areas. ICOs. From what I've seen, initial coin offerings are securities offerings. They are interest in companies, much like stocks and bonds, under a new label. Promoters use the term coin based on the fact that the security being offered is represented by a digital entry or coin on an electronic ledger, as compared with a stock certificate and a related entry in a company's records. You can call it a coin, but if it functions as a security, it is a security. Also importantly, an ICO have, may have nothing to do with distributed ledger technology beyond the coin itself. Buying an ICO does not mean you are investing in blockchain-related ventures. There are many problems with the way cryptocurrency and ICO markets are operating, but two are worth particular attention. First, the markets for these products have substantially less oversight than our traditional securities markets. To be blunt, if you are trading cryptocurrencies on a platform that looks like a stock exchange, do not take any comfort from that look. Our stock exchanges have extensive rule sets, and they are required to conduct surveillance. Also, broker-dealers who facilitate securities trading have capital and conduct requirements. These requirements, and others, without a doubt, are necessary to protect those markets and our investors. Second, many ICOs are being conducted illegally. Their promoters and other participants are not following our securities laws. Some say this is because the law is not clear. I do not buy that for a moment. The analysis is simple. Are you offering a security? If so, you have a choice. Follow our private placement rules or conduct a public offering registered with the SEC. A note for professionals in these markets. Those who engage in semantic gymnastics or elaborate structuring exercises in an effort to avoid having a coin be a security are squarely within the crosshairs of our enforcement division. So what are we doing about these problems? I look forward to discussing with you that question in more detail, but we'll, we'll start with a comment on jurisdiction and a comment on enforcement. We, the SEC, and the CFTC do not have direct jurisdiction over the popular markets that trade true cryptocurrencies. This is not an oversight. It is the result of a new product and market. The traditional currency markets did not need direct regulation by market regulators such as the SEC or the CFTC. They are sovereign-backed and regulated with a long history. Cryptocurrencies, on the other hand, have no sovereign backing or oversight, and again, to be blunt, are currently functioning as assets for trading and investment much more than as mediums for exchange. Please do not view this description as a request for expanded SEC jurisdiction. If asked, we will work with other 
regulators to evaluate and address this issue, including our friends at the Fed, our friends at the CFTC, and the state regulators. They all have a keen interest in this market. I'll close. I know my time is short. Um, to the extent that digital assets like ICOs are securities, and I believe every ICO I have seen is a security, we have jurisdiction and our federal securities laws apply. We will enforce these laws. Many of these laws also include private rights of action. We are working with the DOJ and other regulators to enforce these laws. Thank you for your opportunity to testify before you today. Thank you for the opportunity to testify before you today. And I stand ready to work with Congress on these issues and look forward to your questions. Thank you, Chairman Clayton. Chairman Giancarlo. Uh, thank you, Chairman Crapo, Ranking Member Brown, and distinguished members of the committee. I've submitted a written statement for the record that details the CFTC's work and authority over virtual currencies. But with your permission, I'd like to get, begin briefly with a slightly different perspective, and that is as a dad. I'm the father of three college-aged children, a senior, a junior, and a freshman. During their high school years, we tried to interest them in financial markets. My wife and I set up small brokerage accounts with a few hundred dollars that they could use to buy stocks. Yet other than my youngest son, who owns shares in a video game company, we haven't been able to pique their interest in the stock market. I guess they're not much different than most kids their age. Well, something changed in the last year. Suddenly, they were all talking about Bitcoin. They were asking me what I thought and should they buy it. One of their older cousins, who owns Bitcoin, was telling them about it and they got all excited. And I imagine that maybe members of this committee may have some, ha had some similar experiences in your own families of late. It strikes me that we owe it to this new generation to respect their enthusiasm about virtual currencies with a thoughtful and balanced response, not a dismissive one. And yet we must crack down hard on those who try to abuse their enthusiasm with fraud and manipulation. And we, we must thoroughly educate ourselves and the public about this new innovation, and we must make good policy choices and put in place sound regulatory frameworks to reduce risks for consumers. Putting my CFTC hat back on, I suggest that the right regulatory response to virtual currencies has at least several elements. And the first is to learn everything we can. At the CFTC, we've launched a new initiative called Lab CFTC to engage with these innovators and inform the agency about virtual currencies and other financial technology. Next is to put things in perspective. As of 8 a.m. this morning, the total value of all outstanding Bitcoin is about $113 billion. We have a slightly different figure than you have, Chairman, but close. But the point is that that's less than the market cap of one large publicly traded company, McDonald's. The total value of all virtual currency in the world is around $313 billion. In comparison, global money supply is around $7.6 And because Bitcoin is sometimes compared to gold as an investment asset, the value of all the gold in the world is around $8 trillion, which dwarfs the size of the virtual currency market. The next task is to tell the public what we learn and educate consumers. There's a lot of noise around virtual currency, and regulators must help set the record straight. The CFTC has produced a large amount of consumer education materials on virtual currencies, including written statements, podcasts, webinars, and a dedicated Bitcoin website. 
We've even scheduled visits to libraries and briefings for seniors. We've never conducted this much outreach for any other financial product. Another element is regulatory coordination. Because no one agency has direct authority over virtual currencies, we have to work together. That includes us, the SEC, the Fed, the IRS, the Treasury's FinCEN network, and even state banking officials. And the next element is to exercise our legal authority over derivatives on virtual currencies while clarifying our statutory limitations. To be clear, the CFTC does not regulate the dozens of virtual currency trading platforms here and abroad. We cannot require them to meet requirements like trade reporting and market surveillance, standards for conduct, capital requirements, or even cyber protections or platform safeguards. That these are all standard regulations in the futures markets we oversee. Yet through our authority over commodity derivative markets, we do have enforcement power over spot coin markets. And with newly launched Bitcoin futures, the CFTC can now obtain trading data and analyze it for fraud and manipulation in five underlying spot markets. And that leads to the final element, and that is tough enforcement. Led by the CFTC's Virtual Currency Enforcement Task Force, we've launched several civil actions over the past few weeks, cracking down on fraudsters and manipulators, and more will follow. In closing, I want to quote something that Chairman Clayton and I wrote recently in the Wall Street Journal. These markets are new, evolving, and international. They require us to be nimble and forward-looking and coordinated with state, federal, and international colleagues and engage with important stakeholders, including Congress. I'm glad to be with you today, and I hope my kids are listening. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chairman Giancarlo. And I'll uh, begin the questioning. Um, first, I will say I've had those dinner conversations with my own children, and you're right. Uh, th this is an incredibly interesting but uh, growing new area of uh, financial challenge particularly among our, at least my children and yours. Both of you have said in one way or another that uh, neither of you, neither of your agencies, have complete jurisdiction over cryptocurrencies. The question I have is whether you have sufficient jurisdiction. Um, and I'd like both of you to address that question. Uh, should Congress address uh, revising and refining our financial law so that one agency or a group of agencies have complete jurisdiction? Or if you look at the jurisdiction of all agencies today, do we have sufficient jurisdiction in place today? Chairman Clayton? Well, thank you. And in my position, you're always cautious about speaking for other agencies, so I, I, I thank you Understood. for saying that uh, we should all come to... To be very direct, we should all come together, the federal banking regulators, the CFTC, the SEC, there are, there are states involved as well, and have a coordinated plan for dealing with the virtual currency trading market. Um, I think our Main Street investors look at these virtual, virtual currency trading platforms and assume that they are regulated in the same way that a stock exchange is regulated. And as I said, it's far from that. And I think we should address that issue. So I, am I hearing you say that you don't think we need to have additional legislative authorities? I think we may. I think we may. So first you should get together and tell us what you can and can't do. And 
than advise us. I think that's a very good way to put it, Senator. Chairman Giancarlo? I, I think that's exactly right. I think the first step is to recognize where the gap is. So there is, as we both said in different ways, the, the what we call the spot market for Bitcoin is not a regulated marketplace. Now, for us at the CFTC, we're familiar with that because we generally don't have regulatory supervision over the spot markets for which derivatives apply. That is a longstanding um, basis. We regulate derivative markets, the underlying markets we surveil, and we will take enforcement action for fraud and manipulation, but we don't, we don't have the ability to set the standards on those markets, and that's what we have today in Bitcoin. And unless it's an ICO, then, then as Chairman Clayton described, he also doesn't have the jurisdiction. So there is that gap, and I think the starting point for an informed conversation is there is that. Now, there are other elements to it. There are other um, agencies that come to bear on this. So state regulators, there's a patchwork of state regulation across the nation. Some states have been very assertive in this area. Other states, less so, and some states have nothing. FinCEN, as you referenced, has also been active in the area in terms of anti-money money laundering and, and know-your-customer requirements. So there are uh, there is a patchwork uh, here, but there's not a comprehensive structure, and that's something that I think is a is a policy um, uh, discussion, an important one to be had. All right, thank you, and and uh, you've led to my next question. Uh, much of the activity in the virtual currency markets uh, is cross-border and international, and so that raises obviously the question of. Uh, what challenges does that present, and what is the appropriate role for FinCEN? Uh, both of you, I'd like to respond. I only have about a minute left, so I'll take about 30 seconds each, if you would. I, I will try to be quick. Um, the international nature of this market is why a patchwork is probably not sufficient if it's going to continue to develop as a, as a significant market and one that our, our Main Street investors ex access. From FinCEN's perspective, there... There are reports that we all have heard that this currency, these cryptocurrencies, are used for illicit activity. I think FinCEN has been stepping up in that regard, and I encourage them to continue to do so. And, and this challenge of global markets is a challenge that I think we face now in many regards in, in the 21st century. With the dawn of the Internet, markets have become truly global, and not just in virtual currencies, but so many things. And it does become a challenge as we think about Regulation. We certainly have had that challenge uh, working with overseas uh, regulators in the area of derivatives regulation as, as a result of the Dodd-Frank Act. The challenge of bringing these regulations together in a comprehensive whole is, is really um, uh, a, 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 a tremendous challenge for all of us. So uh, in this area, um, it requires a lot of new thinking. Well, thank you. I appreciate uh your remarks from both of you on these issues, uh, and I would encourage you to form that work group, get together between yourselves, uh, the state regulators, other appropriate federal regulators, and evaluate exactly what our regulatory structure should look like in America to deal with this, and let us know your thoughts, your further thoughts on that. I'd appreciate that. Thank you. Senator Brown. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I uh, Chairman Clayton, again, nice to see you. Last year, initial coin offerings raised about $4 billion globally. You've testified that SEC is focused on policing these transactions to protect investors. How much of that $4 billion was, was raised in the U.S.? It's not clear. It's hard to get a, it's hard to get a number on that because this, is, this has been conducted on, on largely an unregulated basis. Um, but I imagine a, 
I imagine, Senator, a significant enough portion where we should be paying attention. And my understanding is during the last four, few months, the SEC has taken four enforcement actions targeting coin offers for serious violations of law. I mean, that speaks volumes about the work that the challenge is in front of you. Um, the chairman, in response to the chair's question, you both talked, leading with you, uh, Chair Clayton, about agencies working together and the importance of that on, on this and other issues. Uh, your testimony highlights cooperation between the, the SEC and CFTC, Chair Clayton, uh, regulating Bitcoin and other virtual currencies. It doesn't mention any cooperation with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Hundreds of consumers have filed complaints with the Bureau about virtual currencies. How have you been coordinating your work uh, specifically on this, but in other areas, too, with CFPB? I, on this area, largely through the FSOC, at, at the FSOC, um, I believe I have made it very clear my views in this area and that this is an area that we should all be on the lookout for, on the lookout with regard to from each of our perspectives. The CFPB is a member of FSOC and they have heard my comments there. On, a, um, on an enforcement perspective, um, we're in the securities area. I, I don't we don't see the CFPB on the securities side of this. Um, I'm not aware of any direct coordination on a, um, on a particular enforcement action, but I could check on that. Okay. In the past few months, Deutsche Bank, uh, Credit Suisse, UBS, HSBC have been fined over $300 million by other regulators for various forms of market manipulation. But SEC has been quiet under your watch. One study by a Georgetown Law professor found that SEC has, quote, virtually stopped enforcement actions against large entities, often, often referred to as Wall Street firms. How, how do we have confidence, uh, Mr. Chairman, and that the SEC is willing to hold Wall Street accountable when the trend and penalties and actions is going the wrong way? Yeah, I, I, um, I actually saw that, uh, I saw that report. Probably doesn't come as a surprise to you that someone sent it to me. I found it, I found it annoying, to be honest, because it didn't reflect the fact that the gestation period for the cases we bring is roughly 22 to 24 months. So any type of statistics, you know, necessarily have a latency period to them. Um, our our enforcement division put out a report that talks about the numbers in a in a comprehensive way. Um, I'm happy with that report. I'm also confident that the people who are in our enforcement division and leading it, um, many of them former federal prosecutors, uh, two of them heads of the Securities Task Force uh, in the Southern District of New York, former heads, um, are pursuing our securities laws vigorously. I have, I have no doubt. They come to work every day, um, and they have my full confidence. Well, I hear you say that, and I, I, I believe I believe you, you when you say that. Uh, I remember the last uh, SEC, and it wasn't you, the last SEC under Republican president, how they were asleep at the switch. So um, as the chair of the, Richard, as the governor of the Richmond Federal Reserve used to tell me, uh, watch us and let us know you're watching us. But I, I'm further troubled by a statement by one of the SEC's enforcement co-directors last fall that SEC might lose 100 of its enforcement staff by not replacing those who leave. Compared to 2016 figures, this would reflect a 7% reduction in enforcement headcount. So how are you going to stay on top of developments in virtual currencies and the other enforcement, the, all the other areas that we just talked about uh, in 
in, in, to, to be able to fight traditional misconduct? How are you going to do that when you're not replacing the, if in fact that's the case? That, that is, Senator Brown, personnel is my biggest challenge at the moment. And it, we, have, we, have a, we have a hiring freeze as a result of natural increases in costs, a hiring freeze and people you know, retiring or taking other jobs. It reduces the size of the workforce at the SEC. Um, I could use more people in enforcement. I could use more people in trading and markets. Those are the two areas where I think the American people would get the greatest return for additional bodies. So when you come in front of us, and I appreciate your candor, when you come in front of us and tell us that you're having trouble filling those jobs and... Uh, I'm not, no trouble. I'm not. I just can't. Well, okay. That, I guess trouble that way. All right. Because of the freeze. Uh, isn't that message to those who, uh, those who want to game the system and those who want to defraud the system, isn't the message as the SEC is, uh, is not the cop on the beat that even the new chair wants it to be? Do I, do I want more bodies to do more? Yes. Is the message that somehow we're you know, asleep at the swish? Absolutely not. And with your budget that's coming out, our understanding is the budget, it, I mean, I, I hope the freeze is lifted. I hope the budget is enough. And I hope that you will speak to us and, and ask particularly people on the other side of the aisle for the dollars you need and the, the flexibility you need to put those cops on the beat. I'm, I, think I've, I think I've been very straight about incremental amount of money and where I think value can be added. Thank you. Senator Shelby. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Chairman Clayton, you and Chairman Giancarlo, you, you're chairman of two powerful regulatory bodies, but you have different jurisdictions. Anything that smacks of security comes somewhere in your range, does it not? Uh, it, dealing with a commodity, something that could be deemed a commodity, clearly comes in your range. Uh, the Federal Reserve is the biggest bank regulator we have, and also the, the uh, and Treasury is involved in this. How are you going to put together a task force? Do you, can you do it on your own through the administration uh, uh, to deal with the cryptocurrencies? Because you've got the Fed, you've got the Treasury, you've got the commodities, you've got the securities, uh, perhaps some others that we hadn't thought about uh, before this gets out of control somewhere in the world. Let me start, and yes, Chris can comment, ahead, by, uh, by recognizing the Treasury Secretary. He, he has brought us together. Uh, it's good. The CFTC, the SEC, mm -hmm. and representatives of the Federal Reserve to talk <clears throat> about this, because, Senator, you're exactly right. The, 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 the funny thing about these cryptocurrencies is they only work if they're integrated with – they only work for their purported purpose mm -hmm. if they're integrated with the financial system. And so, therefore, it necessarily touches on all of our regulation. But, Chairman? Just reinforce that. The Treasury Secretary has been out on front on this. He has formed a virtual currency working group of ourselves, the SEC, the, um, the, the Fed, and FinCEN. Uh, we've had a number of uh, preliminary conversations and work streams developed. Uh, I've had a number of bilateral conversations with the Treasury Secretary on virtual currencies. And um, uh, we are going to be coordinating our various responses. It's, it's begun with just some broad conversations establishing our different jurisdictions so that we're all clear as to what we're doing, but also what we're not doing, where the gaps are. Do you need uh, additional legislation in this area uh, to both of you, or can you think you can work it 
a task force together to get your arms around this without that? I can't give you a definitive answer to that question because we should work together. But, uh, Senator, we, we, we may be back with, with our friends from Treasury and the, and the Fed uh, to ask for additional legislation. But, uh, you know, we live in a virtual wo world. Uh, we, we go to the doctor and they give you a virtual examination, you know. <laughs> uh, you, we go here, it's a virtual, and this is, was not my world. I started out pencil and paper in school, as you can imagine, but uh, in my day. But at the same time, this currency, cryptocurrencies, they have, they lack intrinsic value, it, it seems to me. They lack liquidity. Uh, it, sure, people have probably made a lot of money going up, and a lot of them made money or lost money going down, but I don't know where the bottom is if if the bottom was ever reached in as opposed to a sovereign-issued currency. You have a... You disagree? No, no, no uh, Senator. Um, I, I don't know where the natural equilibrium uh -huh. point is in this, but I, I will tell you there are some economists who posit that there is a relationship between Bitcoin value and the, um, uh, the, 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 the difficulty or the cost of mining, these, the, which is a process of electronically uh, uh -huh. producing these, and that there are some charts I've seen that have plotted that correlation um, that seemed to be revelly correlated until last summer when the price broke free of that correlation and that they ca it came back into correlation late at the end of the year uh, last year. Now, I I'm not an economist. I, I, I find those things fascinating, but I'm not an expert in it. But the, 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 the point the economists are making is that there is some sort of floor, that the, that the the level set is not zero, that there is some floor there tied into the cost of mining a Bitcoin. And I'm not endorsing that point of view. I'm just uh, sharing that with you. Chairman Clayton, do you have any comment? Yeah, look, I, there are a lot of smart people who think there's something to the, the value of the cryptocurrency and the international exchange. And um, I'm, not, I, I'm not seeing those benefits manifesting themselves in the marketplace yet. And from the perspective of, look, I look at this as a perspective of protecting Main Street investors. They should understand that. How, how do you put a value on cryptocurrencies? Does the market put a value on it? Or does it uh, uh, go straight up and then straight down or what? Well, that's, you know, what's something worth? It's what somebody's willing to pay you for it. Uh -huh. but, but in our world, the securities world, you know, there are rules that dictate how much you have to tell somebody about but, what it is they're, you're selling them. But part of your mandate or your, the security exchange is to protect the investor, is that right? That's right. And, and uh, the chairman of the Commodity Futures Trading, he's, he's seen, obviously, commodities just go wild at times, and yours, your mandate is to watch the commodities, right? Market integrity is generally perceived to be our core mandate. Uh, you also mentioned uh, personnel. You know, you need personnel. Uh, there's a hiring freeze on. We talked the other day about uh, this gets in the realm of appropriations and so forth. I'm hoping that we will give you every tool you need to do your job and to hire the people that you need to execute that. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Senator Reid. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, for your testimony. Uh, and following on the questions of Senator Brown and Senator Shelby, uh, you do need more personnel. But very specifically, do you have the technologists, the computer experts, that can begin to understand uh, how these cryptocurrencies work, the cryptologist, uh, and not just to sort of on a day-to-day -day basis uh, sort of, you know, give you the temperature, but look ahead and say this is the direction it's going, which could have very significant deleterious effects. Do you, do you have anyone like that on the staff? The, the answer to your question is we formed a cryptocurrency working group, a, a cyber group. Um, they've, done a, they've done an exceptional job getting up to speed on this in a short amount of time and identifying some of the very issues you talk about. Um, could, you know, in an emerging area like this, could you use more horsepower? Always. Um, I, I, but I, I, you, you make a very good point, Senator, on looking, looking out across the international nature of this and trying to understand where it's going to land and do the, do the things that people say add up. That's, that is a very important where, uh, just where, uh, where are the technologists located? If you don't have them, I presume you don't. Is it? We have, we have, we have what I would say it's a combination of economists and technologists. It's a question of, you know, here's what the technology is and does it make economic sense? We have those people in our um, economics division, DIRA, um, and we also have some of them enforcement, and they work but, together. But you need more. Yeah, I'll take that as yes. Mr. Chiancalo, uh, same question. Do you have the technologies? Are you working together? Th thank you, Senator Reid. We've done a couple of things in 2017 to, uh, as, as um, uh, Senator Brown said, to get ahead of the curve. Uh, we hired the agency's first ever chief innovation officer. Uh, someone who comes with a, a deep background in a lot of these new financial technology innovations. We also created something called Lab CFTC, which is our innovation hub. And you asked, where is it located? It's actually located in New York City because so much of this innovation is taking place there. And we wanted to be close to these innovators to learn from them. But, but in terms of protecting consumers, we also formed a virtual currency enforcement task force. It was actually that task force that recently brought three civil actions against Bitcoin fraudsters. Um, and and, and the, as I said in my testimony, there's more to come. And, and as to the resource questions, we do need more resource. Um, I used our bypass authority last year to put forward a budget request of 13% over our budget. We had been flat funded for three years. And um, we do need additional resources. And built in those resources are additional resources for fintech generally and, and cyber and, and cryptocurrencies specifically. Let me just uh, elaborate a bit. We, we continue to refer to Bitcoin. That is just one cryptocurrency. They seem to me and, and proliferating that, that every day there's a new variety of cryptocurrencies. Some of them out and out fraudulent. Some of them based on the same crypto. Bitcoin technology or processes, but uh, just the sheer expansion of these uh, uh, cryptocurrencies is an issue, one. And then two, because my time is short, and I have one other un slightly unrelated question to Chairman Clayton, is um, are you tracking all these different daily emerging currencies, one? And two is, again, it goes back to my sort of step back question, is someone looking long term at the systemic effects 
you know, where are we going to be? This is eerily reminiscent of the late 90s in derivatives, which were nominally small parts of the market that were esoteric, et cetera. And then, of course, 10 years later, exploded. So why don't you start with Mr. Giancarlo and the chairman, and I'll finish up with the chairman. Thank you very much. So you're absolutely right. Uh, Bitcoin is one of, of many. However, of, of the many, there's really a, a, you know, a handful that have gotten right. significant traction. And, that are, and so that's important, though, for listeners to know, because so many of these are fraudulent, as you said. We uh, went after one, and just mentioned it, because uh, I think it's interesting, called My Big Coin, which became known as My Big Con, um, by people that were defrauded by it. It was people that really were taking, it was a Ponzi scheme. They were taking mm -hmm. consumers' money and use it to buy houses and, 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 and furniture and jewelry. And we went after them and went after them hard, and we will continue to do that. Thank In you. terms of systemic risk, right now this is still a relatively small market just by ratio. But as you say, we have to watch it and watch it carefully. Mr. Chairman. Yeah. So, as I mentioned, the SEC doesn't have direct jurisdiction right. over, over the pure cryptocurrencies, but we have had to watch it because, of course, they're integrated with the markets that we do oversee. Mm -hmm. um, and your, to your question of does 10 make sense or 15 or 20 make sense, you know, I have a hard time getting my head around that because if it's an efficient, if it's efficient medium of exchange, 15 of them fluctuating different places probably doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But, you know... That's that's where I'm at. On on uh, systemic, look, there's there's I don't I agree with I agree with uh, Chairman Giancarlo, um, but if people are getting ripped off, that presents reputational risks mm. that can have systemic effects. Uh, we can go into a raft of questions: money laundering, evading, et cetera. But just changing gears one second, and uh, I'll make a, a comment and then follow up with a written question. Uh, there is some consideration, I, I have heard, of the SEC allowing in public offering, initial public offerings, uh, bars to suit, i.e. forced arbitration. Mm -hmm. I think that would be a very bad idea, uh, and I'll make the argument uh, and write I'm to happy you. to address the question if you... Well, we're out of time on that right now, so we'll have to do it with writing. You, you can put... We'll talk. <laughs> Senator Rounds. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Gentlemen, I'm just curious. I, I'm, I go back to where I learned with a pen and pencil to begin with as well. And uh, we did not have a quill at that time, but we, we did have number two lead. And uh, as I get into this and, and learn more about this thing, it's fascinating to see how quickly things are moving. And yet, everything that we talk about seems to translate back into dollars and cents yet. That has not changed until now. And suddenly we're talking about a new type of exchange, and it sounds almost like bartering to me. And it's a bartering which could avoid the determination of a value in dollars and cents, which brings up the question of how do you tax it if you need to? How do you recognize income? Um, but also, in this particular case, I've, I noticed both of you identified that you have additional or you have existing resources and regulatory oversight capabilities that you are utilizing today. And while I question whether or not there are seams that have to be filled, it would appear that some basics that maybe a lot of us don't quite understand still have to be answered. And I just want to just start out, because I, I, I think, Mr. Clayton, you started with this discussion with regard to the, the, um, 
the issue of whether or not you had uh, uh, control over an ICO and the fact that if they were issuing, in this particular case, Bitcoin or the opportunity to, to market it, you had identified it as a stock or at least a value of something. What is, in this particular case, that thread that you utilize once again? And can you delve into that a little bit more about how your agency responds to the regulatory need in this particular case? What is the specific item that you look at as being an item which is subject to your review? A security in what? The, the definition of a, a security um, is broad, and it includes. Uh, I'm going to. I'm trying. I'm going to not use the technical terms. There's Supreme Court cases and things like that. But it includes when, if you are offering me a security or offering me something, a coin, and I give you money, and the purpose of me giving you that money is to profit from your efforts going forward. So if I give you, if I give you money. You give me a coin, and you say, "I'm going to, I'm going to take the money, and I'm going to grow a business, and that's going to increase the value of that coin." And by the way, Chairman Clayton, you can trade it to somebody else. So you may be able to get value for it tomorrow. In fact, you probably will get value for it tomorrow. Buy now, so you can get more value for it in a few days. That's a security. So, commodity-wise, if we're looking at trading commodities, you would not have an interest in the subject of investigating or reviewing whether or not the trading of an ag commodity nope. was something. And yet, when we talk about the CFTC, we're talking about a different story where commodities most certainly are an item of interest to you. Is Bitcoin or are these as currently being traded, are they a commodity or are they a security or are they both? What's so challenging about Bitcoin is it has characteristics of multiple different things. It, one of the phrases that's often used is that Bitcoin is a medium of exchange, a store of value, or a means of account. Well, those three things have different connotations to them. If it's a, means of, a medium of exchange, then it's like a currency-like instrument. And yet, as we've seen, um, a number of... Um, uh, uh, means of exchanges have been closed to Bitcoin. There was recently a Bitcoin conference that stopped accepting Bitcoin for registrants because they couldn't process the payments. So, it, but yet it's still spoken of as perhaps a means of account. When, and in that case, it has implications from the Fed and currency. From our point of view, when it's used as a store of value, then it's very much like an asset, like a commodity. And in fact, what we hear a lot of is people buying and holding. If you, if you go onto the Twitter universe, you'll see a phrase HODL, which means hold on for dear life. And the, the thinking is, is that they buy it and hold it. In fact, I, I mentioned in my opening remarks my 30-year-old niece who bought Bitcoin years ago, and she's an HODL. She says, I'm going to own it. I don't know what's going to come of it, but I want to hang on to it. And she's, she's not a fraudster or a manipulator. She's just a kid and, and, and believes in it. And, and I was fascinated talking to her. And I think she represents a lot of folks that think there's something in this. I want to hold on to it. And so in that regard, it's a, from our point of view, it's a commodity. And if there's a derivative on that, we regulate it. The problem is, in the cash market, we don't have regulatory authority, means we can't set the standards. But what we will do 
and we are doing is looking for fraud and manipulation, and we intend to be very aggressive, if nothing else, so that people like my niece can have some security that there's not fraudsters and manipulators out there, and there are a lot, too many, far too many of them. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Your suggestion earlier that we bring them both back in at a later date uh, after they've had an opportunity to look at the differences would be very appropriate. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Mr. Thank you, Chairman. Senator Warren. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. So, Chairman Clayton, on January 26th, Bloomberg published an article entitled SEC Weighs a Big Gift to Companies Blocking Investor Lawsuits. Now, as you know, class action lawsuits are how investors can hold companies accountable when they defraud people. And the article says the SEC is thinking about letting companies sell shares in initial public offerings while at the same time allowing those companies to prohibit investors from bringing class action lawsuits against them. Wow. I mean, forcing investors to give up class actions when they've been defrauded. The SEC has never allowed corporations to bar investors who get cheated from bringing class action lawsuits. So I just want to get a straight yes or no answer from you on this. Do you support this enormous change in SEC policy? So I, I, I think you know that I can't prejudge an issue that may come before the SEC, but I, I'd be happy to talk to you about this. And let me get to the, let me get to the bottom line. I'm, I'm not, I can't, I can't dictate whether this issue comes before us or not because of the way it has come before the SEC in the past. But I'm not anxious to see a change in this area. Okay, so I'm reading tea leaves here. No, you no, are reading tea leaves. I'm not. I, I, I'm I mean, not. You, ru you run this agency. The yep. change can't happen without your approval. That I actually, think it's actually, fair that's, for the. That's, that's actually not right. Uh, if it came up before the agency, I'm only one of five votes. I, I'm going to guess there are going to be at least two votes against that, and that you at best will be yeah, the deciding just, vote. Senator, Senator, I don't want to prejudge the issue. If this issue, I want to be practical. If this issue were to come up before the agency, it would take a long time for it to be decided, because it would be the subject of a great deal of debate. And like I said, in terms of, in terms of where we can do better, this is not an area that is on my list for where we can do better. Okay, so I tell you what, um, Chairman Clayton, I'm going to let you get away with that, well, that's because, because what I'm reading is real skepticism about a rule like this. You know, the SEC's mission is to protect investors, not throw them under the bus. Mm -hmm. And I can't think of anything that would do more harm to investors than saying they have to pre-waive their rights to sue a company in a class action when that company cheats them. So, Like I said, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a change that's on it's I hear you. So let me ask you about something else, and that's the fiduciary rule. Mm -hmm. uh, financial advisors who put the high fees, the commissions, the kickbacks, the prizes they can get for recommending a specific product ahead of the interests of their clients cost hardworking Americans trying to save for their retirements about $17 billion every year. And that's why President Obama and the Department of Labor put the fiduciary rule in place to eliminate these conflicts of interest in retirement accounts like 401ks and IRAs. Now, 
Less than a month after you were sworn in as chairman of the SEC, you issued a request for information asking for public comment on rulemaking related to the standards of conduct for investment advisors and broker-dealers. Mm -hmm. Can you state to this committee that any rulemaking you do on this topic will not weaken the existing protections for retirement savers? I'm making making an absolute statement like that. Yeah, I, I, an absolute statement yeah, that you are well, not going mean, to weaken I, rules for people who are trying to save for their retirement. From, based from what from what baseline? Uh, let me. Well, we have a we have a rule from the Department of Labor. Now you could strengthen the rule, you could pass the same rule, or you could weaken the rule. I want to know that you're not going to weaken the rule. That's all I'm asking you. Here, here, here's what I'm trying to do. Let me tell you what I'm trying to do. The the relationship between an investment advisor, broker, dealer, and their client in a very simple area, they have a 401k, they have an annuity, and they have a few stocks, is regulated, throw, throw out the banking regulars, it's regulated by no less than five people. <laughs> and, and they all have different standards. My, my main objective is to bring clarity to that without jeopardizing investor protection. Well, that's how I'm though, but that's the question I'm asking about it, yeah. about... Uh, whether or not you're jeopardizing the protection that people are trying to save for their retirement. Get, I get I, I that you could bring clarity. I, clarity could be do whatever you want. Clarity is what is right now has cost American I, investors saving for their retirement $17 billion I, I dollars it, a year. I think it's a combination of an insufficient standard in some places, which we, we are looking to increase. I'm a, glad a to hear of, that. A lack of clarity. And also, the standard is only as good as the remedy available. And one of the things that I'm also looking at, I, believe me, I spent a lot of time in this space trying to get it right. One of the things we're looking at is what, what dollars do you actually collect when somebody has done you harm? Because you can have a really strong standard, but if there are no dollars there, that's a problem. So I, I agree with you, Mr. Chairman. If you want to strengthen enforcement of this rule or strengthen the rule itself, count me in. But that's what the American I'm, people look to the SEC I, for. I, Thank I, you. I, I do. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Senator Chairman. Senator Perdue. I want to go change the subject just a little bit back to Bitcoin here or to <laughs> cryptocurrencies. Um, you know, we see in, in IPOs and, and tax uh, jurisdictional um, arbitrage. Do you guys see that today in this developing cryptocurrency and also in ICUs, ICOs? Uh, Chairman Clayton, you want to start with that? I, I, well, yeah. And by the way, who pays for frivolous class action lawsuits? Who pays for that? Shareholders. Yeah. And in investors, I would argue customers, employees, all of the above, right? Yeah. Would you answer that question for me, please? Um, so regulatory arbitrage is one of many issues that I see in this market. Um, to, be, to be frank, you know, tax loss and things like that are there. Of course they are because it's... Record keeping, it's difficult to trace. So, who, where, where are the countries? South Korea and China are the ones that predominantly play in this world. You, you said before most of, the current, most of the current investment comes from the U.S. I'm not sure. I, I don't know if we all know enough yet to know that, right? South Korea and China are really heavily invested. In fact, China now, or uh, South Korea has a new rule that says you have to use real name bank accounts in order to trade in this. 
Yeah, I think uh, and you're, those you're, are the kinds of things I'm asking for. Is, it, is there arbitrage really going on around the world here? There, there, there is certainly regulatory arbitrage, but what, you're making a great point because this was, this was a largely unregulated space across the world. And now what you're seeing is each country taking a perspective, a view, action, et cetera, which also goes to how functional is this asset class and how, and how would we regulate it and how does it work? Um, there's a lot happening that is beyond the kind of understanding of your average investor. How, how would you know? How so how, how can we, in two agencies here, I understand there's interaction between all of our regulatory agencies, but there's also another uh, axis here that you have to coordinate. That's the other country regulators as well. Correct. So I'm, I'm asking both of you, what are you seeing and what, what are you anticipating we need to do to make sure, either legislatively or rulemaking, to uh, combat that? Chris, do you want to? Sure. Let me jump in. I just identified two areas of, of arbitrage we're seeing. One is regulatory, which I want to come to, but actually we're also seeing price arbitrage as well. There's something uh, known as the kimchi, kimchi premium for Bitcoin traded in South Korea because there's so much interest there that it right. drives the price up there slightly higher. So price arbitrage. But, you know, in the early days of many markets, every American city had a cotton exchange and the prices were different there before you developed a national market. So here we have different regional and international markets, and, and perhaps as this market matures, if it matures, a, a singular price may develop. Um, in terms of regulation, there's, I, unfortunately, I think that some time ago, perhaps in the middle of last year, there was this perception that Bitcoin was off the regulatory grid. And one of the things that, that Chairman Clayton and I have been working so hard to do is to disabuse that notion. Now, we are, are limited in our regulatory authority to set regulatory standards on these underlying platforms. But when it comes to enforcement, uh, when it comes to ICOs, we're using our full authority to drive the message. And other countries are doing that as well. And we've had frequent conversations. I spoke recently uh, or had communication recently with the head of the Jap Japan Financial Service uh, agency about some things that were going on there. Jay Clayton spoke very eloquently at the FSB meeting recently in Basel, Switzerland. We are beginning our communication with other regulators, and I think the message is getting through that this is not off the grid. And I think part of that is now you're seeing it in the Bitcoin price. As the word is getting out that we will go after uh, misconduct, I think you're starting to see that reflecting the price, and I think that's an important step. Well, what little time we have left, I'd like both of you to respond to the pump and dump uh, uh, efforts that are underway right now. You see this beginning to develop. Um, can you? I know you're both involved in this. Can you both address what your agencies are doing to uh, combat that? Um, Senator Pru, this is this is one of the things that I'm worried that investors don't understand, which is when you Me have an, when you have an unregulated exchange, the ability to manipulate prices right. goes up significantly, right. and. You know, just a few coordinated sales can change a price. Um, or an email, a fraudulent email. Correct. Yeah. I've mentioned we formed this uh, virtual currency enforcement task force. I mean, we've got some really good people on this. And um, as we've brought three actions in the last few weeks. I said there are more to come. There are more to come. We are digging deep and learning a lot and seeing a lot. And I, I don't want to... Uh, get ahead of that, other than to say that we are we are working the beat hard right now. And you have jurisdictional um, right to do that, right? We, we have enforcement jurisdiction. Okay. Yes, we do. Great. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Donnelly. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks to both the witnesses. 
And this would be to both of you. Now that the SEC and the CFTC have asserted jurisdiction and warned the public of the risks posed by virtual currency operators, what other ways can your agencies prevent retail investors from falling victim to fraud and manipulation? Yeah, I'm glad to, happy to take this question, Senator. Uh, earlier, uh, Senator uh, Ranking Member Brown mentioned what are we doing with the CFPB. We've actually uh, formed a, um, uh, a partnership with the CFPB to uh, consumer education in the area of Bitcoin. Um, one of the things I've learned recently is that America's libraries are a place where a lot of people go and research yeah. Bitcoin. In fact, they use the library computers. One of the most frequently searched items from a library computer is uh, a Bitcoin. And so we're teaming up with CFPB to go out to America's libraries to educate librarians who often get some of the questions asked to be able to direct uh, library uh, patrons to use our resources, our, our, our Bitcoin website and our other resources. So we are really getting very creative in the area of consumer education. I've mentioned we've got several podcasts on this subject, which, which are with thousands of downloads. Uh, we are working as hard as we've ever worked. We've never done as much work on consumer education as we've done with virtual currency. We also have an, an office of investor education that has been engaged with a, with a number of groups on this, and I think they've done a terrific job getting the word out. Um, in terms of like getting the word out, though, there are financial intermediaries and other actors that we're counting on to act responsibly in this area. Okay. Deal with their well, well, let me ask you a follow-up, and it, it goes to the point you just made about the libraries and others. Um, are you concerned that retail investors will remain vulnerable to fraudulent and manipulative online solicitations that are sometimes more difficult for you guys to pick up? Senator, um, in the broad range of marketplaces, seniors uh, seem to be the, the choice, the prey of choice for fraudsters and manipulators, um, whether it's in precious metals, whether it's in foreign exchange, whether it's in a whole range of products, we see and we prosecute continuously uh, fraudsters who seek to prey on either the less sophisticated uh, seniors who maybe uh, have, don't quite have the retirement nest egg that they believe they need and, and fall prey to get-rich-quick schemes or, or schemes that say we'll guarantee 100% returns and all kinds of nonsense like that. And it's a, it's a big part of our enforcement effort at the agency. Let, let me ask you this. Um, and this goes uh, to perspective and, and to hopes and dreams. But um, what warnings would you give? Um, there was an article in the Washington Post yesterday, um, and it was about good, hardworking Americans, uh, people who have worked really hard and want to have a pension. It was about a, a group of uh, our friends and neighbors from Kentucky. And the title of the article was, Bitcoin is my potential pension. Um, what, would you, what would you say to them to help protect them from uh, winding up in a situation a few years from now where it didn't quite work out the way they were hoping? It, it's, it's such a troubling um, development, Senator, unquestionably, which is why we're putting out so much so much materials. Um, but what I would say to them is it's the same advice I'd give my children. If it sounds too good to be true, it is. If they're promising a ridiculous returns, they're ridiculous. If, 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 you, if you are you going to give them money, you'd better be prepared to lose it. 
Um, yeah. I, I agree with everything that uh, Chairman G. Carlos said. Um, I also would say, say this to them, which is there are things like disruptive technologies that come along, but they shouldn't disrupt the way you look at markets for us or the way you look at investing. Pumping all of your money into a disruptive technology has a very high likelihood of not working out for you as an individual. When we see disruptive technologies come along, you know, there, are, there will be winners, but there will be many losers. Okay. That's the way it works. Let me ask you one other question. Um, how can both of you best assist law enforcement and federal authorities to ensure these virtual currencies are not used by terrorist groups or nations like North Korea to evade sanctions? So we work very closely um, uh, with law enforcement. Um, we uh, recently commenced a program with the FBI where we actually have FBI agents on secondment with our agency in order to look at this. At the end of the day, the uh, use of these cash markets for that, it's going to require cooperation amongst multiple agencies, especially with FinCEN, who often, because of their uh, anti-money laundering operation, may see some of these issues before we can, and then bring our expertise to bear and coordinate with our law enforcement agencies. Same here. I would supplement that with we also have a, um, a dark web working group that tries to monitor what's going on in that space in order to identify these types of issues. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Kennedy. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, welcome, gentlemen. I think you're both doing a terrific job. Um, Chairman Giancarlo, when is the last time you bought a stock exchange-traded fund, mutual fund, or a bond? Um, so I hold um, uh, uh, generally traded funds. Yes. Um, When's the uh, last time you bought one? Well, probably before I, I pretty much put my investing. Um, a year ago? Uh, well, probably before I started at the commission. Two years ago? Over. Yes. Okay. When you bought it, what did you buy, um, equity or bond? Uh, index funds mostly. Index funds, okay. When you bought it, did you sit down and read the prospectus for the index fund? Well, uh, you know, I, I'm not supposed to, to say cover. this as a lawyer. I'm not supposed to say that I probably didn't read it cover to cover, but I will confess that I didn't read it cover to cover. How many investors do you think do that, don't read it? I think most. Okay. So what's the point? I mean, we're, we're talking about all the dangers and the risks of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. I'm putting, I'm putting aside the, the shyster fraud issue. I mean, what's the point of all this overdisclosure if nobody's reading it? Well, I'll And why do we want to do the same thing with Bitcoin? I'll say, historically, it's been one of the foundational principles of our securities laws that adequacy of disclosure, full disclosure, is one of the building blocks. I will tell you, having been in business, that most business people will tell you it's, they, they study the prospectus only to see what they can sue on if they need to sue on something if something goes wrong. I mean, I, I, I think you see where I'm going. 
I'm, I'm going to ask you both a philosophical question in a second about how far you think we ought to go to protect people from themselves. But I, I don't think the disclosure we have right now works. I think it, it, it's good for the lawyers and it's good for the financial advisors. But I think I think we, we, we over-disclose. And, and I don't I, th I think you can uh, I'll bet you each have, you each have a smart lawyer on your staff. You could go to them and say, write me a good disclosure for Bitcoin. And you would get it back and look at it and then pick 50 names from the Washington, D.C. phone book and ask them to come in and say, read this and tell me if it makes sense to you. I mean, what's the point? Um, how, how far do you think well to go here in terms of uh, cryptocurrency? I'm separating this from the blockchain technology. I mean, um, China outlawed them. Outlawed it. So I think South Korea has too. What are you suggesting? That we just go after the shysters and fully disclose? I mean, is that what you think we ought to do? Well, Secretary yeah. or, or Chairman Senator, Clark? I, th I think that is exactly the question we're here to we're here to pose and take forward, which is, you know, what is the right way to deal with this new technology? I'm I'm not as just a person watching it, I'm not satisfied when I see people thinking that these trading platforms of cryptocurrencies um, have the same kind of protections that a stock exchange would. And I'm very unhappy that people are <clears throat> conducting ICOs, like public offerings of stock, when they should know that they should be following the private placement rules unless they're registering with us. Those two things make me unhappy. We're figuring out how to deal with them is, is why we're here. I. I agree with you that we should be careful not to go too far. Um, but for me in the, just to be clear, for me in this ICO space, it's pretty clear that when people are violating our, our, our securities laws work pretty well, disclosure can be improved. It can really be improved. Well, let me make this suggestion because I don't want to go over. Last time I, I, I asked questions, I uh, got a little carried away. I think I went over three minutes. And uh, uh, our ranking member put me on double secret probation. So I'm not going to do that today. Like I have the power to do that. He does. I, I'm, I, I just, the disclosure, I mean, you can extend the disclosure we have now to Bitcoin, and you haven't done anything. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't have disclosure, but you've got to have disclosure that, 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 that makes sense and helps people other than the lawyers. I, I, I agree, Senator. Senator Warner. I usually agree with my friend from Louisiana. Um, but I think we may be on top of something that is transformational. And I don't think you can separate the underlying distributed ledger or blockchain from some of these crypto assets. And if we looked, if we had the same rate of increase that we've, the next two years that we've had, the last couple of years, we're, we're talking now a couple hundred billion, we'd be at north of $20 trillion caught up in this area by 2020. Um, and I just, I, I think you, I remember back, I was lucky enough to get in the cell phone business back in the early 80s and everybody thought 
was going to be a small business and they were wrong and I got rich. I think we're looking at the same kind of transformation about to take place and we are going to have to wrap our arms around it. We've talked about some of the consumer protection issues, but we've got money laundering issues. We've got cybersecurity issues. A third of the, uh, the Bitcoin exchanges have been cyber hacked between 2009 and 2015. I'm not exactly sure what the right regime ought to be, but I would argue that, well, I commend the Treasury Secretary for putting a working group together, but I would argue this is the reason we created FSOC in the first place, that this rises potentially to the level of a systemically relevant event. And I'd just be curious whether the, you believe, uh, and I commend what both of you are trying to do, but I, whether this ought to elevate to an FSOC level analysis. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, Senator, I, I had the same question you had, which is there's a, there's a big rise here. If it does keep going, you know, is this a systemic issue, which is one of the reasons we brought it up at FSOC, talked about it at FSOC. I, I again, commend the Treasury Secretary for forming the working group. Um, I, I want to go back to separating ICOs and, and cryptocurrencies. ICOs that are securities offerings, we should regulate them like we regulate securities offerings. End of story. I'm going to make sure, because I've got a couple more points. Yeah, thank you, Senator. Just real quickly, on the issue of disclosure, sometimes what we're seeing is not a problem of absence of disclosure. It's false disclosure. And false disclosure is often fraud. And I think we need to step in there. But just in terms of discussion, as Chairman Clayton mentioned, we have begun discussions at FSOC. In addition, there's also been discussions led by Chairman Clayton at the Financial Stability Board and also at IOSCO, which is the International Organization of Securities Commissioners. So these discussions are taking place at the right levels of debate, but there's so much more to be done. But, and again, to my friend from Louisiana point, you know, we've got this, we, we're focused on a lot on Bitcoin and crypto assets, cryptocurrencies, and I think there's even definitional issues here. But you've got a whole new platform called Ethereum where they're creating, you know, file sharing or extra computer time. I'm not sure what, yep. what kind of assets those fall into. Are they, are they potentially regulated within your realm or if there is a trade, a trading exchange, a tokenization exchange between excess computer time, I'm not sure where, we, where that fits at this point. I th I, the definition of a security, I believe, uh, the people who wrote the 34 Act and the 33 Act, they were smart. They, they did it on a principled basis, and they, they basically said, if you're giving people money in exchange for a future development of a business with the hope of a return, and whether that return comes in the form of server time or your ability to sell server time, it's a security. But there have been, and I concur with the approach you've taken in terms of the ICOs, yeah. and I think there's been some very bad behavior, mm -hmm. yet certain ICOs, the SEC has not stopped, others they have stopped. You know, and are, are you going to go back and re-review the ones that, that have gone forward? Let me, let me say another thing about the 33 and 34 Act. When they were written, there was a great recognition that there was a tremendous amount of securities activity in this country, and that we were going to rely on gatekeepers to help us enforce those, and liability to help us enforce those rules. Accountants, lawyers, underwriters, sellers, and the like. I'm counting on those people to do their job, and I've made that clear. Let me ask Chairman Jean Carlo, you know, what we did, and one of the things I'm concerned about was that we, I think we may have moved too fast on allowing, for example, futures trading 
on Bitcoin. And I would just wonder, you know, you've allowed future trading contracts on Bitcoin, yet we've, the SEC has not allowed ETFs. I'm just worried that we need a much more con- coordinated effort because I think the potential writ large amongst crypto assets and the underlying blockchain could be as transformational as wireless was years ago. And I think we're going to need a much more coordinated effort. I know my time's expired, but if you could both quickly comment on that, I'd appreciate it. I, I believe it is critically important that we coordinate on this. I, I, I believe that we are all both individually and, and collectively understanding our authorities, understanding this new technology, working, working around it. There was a communication amongst myself, uh, Chairman Clayton, uh, the Treasury Secretary, and others in connection with Bitcoin futures. And, you know, Bitcoin futures have dumped, are, are, are quite different than the Bitcoin market. The Bitcoin is an anonymous area. Bitcoin futures is fully transparent to the regulator. Bitcoin retail. Bitcoin futures, mostly institutional and high net worth. Um, uh, um, uh, Bitcoin futures regulated. Uh, uh, Bitcoin futures regulated. Bitcoin unregulated. And with Bitcoin futures, we're now having visibility into underlying spot markets and data from those markets that we would not otherwise have. Completely agree on coordination. I, I, like I said, I break it down into three areas. There's this great technology that I agree with you has promise. There are these pure cryptocurrencies, which we need to we need to take a look at across FinCEN, Treasury, CFTC, Fed, and then there are securities offerings that are called ICOs that should be should be undertaken as securities offerings, consistent with our regulatory regime. Senator Cotton. Thank you, and thank you, gentlemen, for your appearance today. Um, I want to continue on a line of questioning that Senator Warner began. So putting aside Bitcoin or other kinds of cryptocurrencies that are based on blockchain or distributed ledger technology, um, what are your thoughts on the potential value of that underlying technology of blockchain and distributive ledger technology, uh, both to enterprises and consumers and perhaps to government agencies? Uh, it's important to remember that if there were no Bitcoin, there would be no distributed ledger technology. It grew out of that technology initiative. And the application, potential applications, uh, and, and by the way, I'm no pie-in-the-sky dreamer. I just report what I read. And, 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 but the, the applications range from um, um, uh, uh, enormous potential in financial services industry, in the banking industry, but right down to the way cha- charity dollars are spent, the way uh, perhaps refugees are accounted for across the globe. There was an article just this morning about use of distributed ledger technology for two and a half billion people around the world who don't have access to banking services. Um, one of the areas that in our own area of agriculture futures, 66 um, uh, um, million tons of American soybeans were just handled through a blockchain transaction by the Dreyfus company for sale to China. So Bitcoin is now being used. It's used in our American transportation logistics system. And, and most importantly, the potential of distributed ledger technology for regulators to be able to do really close market surveillance. And if it had been available in 2008, if we had been able to see the counterparty credit exposure of one bank to another bank in real time with precision, that would have enabled much more 
precise policy choices that were, had to be made in a rush without good data. So I think distributed ledger technology has got an enormous potential. Now, how it will be realized, when it will be realized, what are the other challenges in it, those we can't say, but the potential seems extraordinary. Thank you. Mr. Clayton? I agree that the potential uh, seems very significant. And just look around anywhere in our economy where verification and record keeping has cost that is potentially reduced is an opportunity for this technology. That's just one of them, and I, I, I hope people pursue it vigorously. Thank you. Let's, let's turn our attention now to cryptocurrency and to Bitcoin, since it's the most prominent. Uh, yesterday, the Dow Jones had its single largest decline in a point scale, 4.6% um, uh, as a percent, um, which is high, not the highest ever. Um, that obviously generated a lot of news coverage. Uh, the dollar has um, faced 2% inflation or less now for many years. Bitcoin, however, has seen a 32,000% increase in its value over the last five years. It's declined by some 60%, I think, in the, just the last 30 days. What, what are the factors driving that kind of extreme price volatility in Bitcoin relative to securities of public traded companies or the U.S. dollar? Well, just recently, the, the volatility we've seen in Bitcoin was not as, as large as volatility we've seen in some other asset classes, such as the VIX product, which is known as the fear index at volatility gauge. Um, and so we have seen extraordinary volatility in Bitcoin. But, uh, you know, in, in our world, in, in commodity derivatives, we're used to volatility in asset classes. And that's one of the things that the emergence of a futures product is meant to do is to um, uh, uh, provide those who are exposed to that volatility a means of hedging and, and mitigating the risk to that volatility. Mr. Clayton. I, I don't really know what's driving the volatility in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. It's, they're not correlated with sovereign currencies, so it must be something different from what would drive the dollar. Um, but that's one, of, that's one of the issues before us, is there does appear to be a lot of volatility compared to the, um, the medium they are supposed to be a substitute for. Now, what, so what does that kind of volatility portend for cryptocurrencies future as a potential alternative to legal tender of nation states or in the EU's it, case, a transnational organization? You raise a great point. Now, maybe that volatility tamps down to a, to a stable, but a, a, an asset that is highly volatile is not a very effective means of exchange because you don't know how much you're getting by the time you receive it or how much you're paying at the time you have to pay it. If you agree a price on day one but have to source it on day 10, you expose yourself to significant risk. Thank you. My, my time has expired. I do want to associate myself with the remarks of Senator Donnelly at the end of his remarks about the risks that cryptocurrencies are currently posing uh, as a way for rogue nations, terrorist organizations, criminal organizations to evade sanctions, uh, not just in trading but in hacking as well, as we've seen media reports from North Korea. So I'm glad to hear that you are working closely with our law enforcement and intelligence agencies, and I hope that continues. Thank you. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to both, and it's good to welcome a fellow New Jerseyan uh, in your role, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I have been actively following both Venezuela and Russia's uh, interest in developing virtual currencies for the purposes uh, of evading U.S. sanctions. 
last month I sent a letter to Secretary Mnuchin on this subject, and I asked Under Secretary uh, Mandelker about this a few weeks ago when she was here before the committee. Under what circumstances would the SEC and the CFTC have a role in engaging or regulating uh, the proposed new petrol or crypto ruble currencies? Uh, more broadly, does the SEC and CFTC have a role to play in preventing the use of digital currencies by foreign governments to evade U.S. sanctions? Our, our jurisdiction should be very limited in that area, Senator. Um, we have, as I've said, spoken about before, we do have enforcement authority for fraud and manipulation. And so if we thought that that instrument was being used for fraudulent purposes, manipulation purposes, we would not hesitate to take authority um, uh, but this, you, you're probably touching on an area where the, the jurisdictional um, uh, lapse is probably greatest for the, for the two agencies sitting before you today. Uh -huh. And so let me ask you, manipulation, what if you're manipulating to avoid U.S. sanctions? Um, you know, I'd have to speak to our enforcement counsel to see how that fits in, but we would certainly look at it. And, and if I'd like to have you do so, and I would love to hear back uh, through the committee. Are, are you uh, interacting with FinCEN to the extent that uh, you may have limited jurisdiction? Are you adequately integrated into the financial regulatory network that watches for illicit activities, or are there gaps that could create vulnerabilities? Yeah. So as, as we mentioned before, Senator, um, uh, Chairman Clayton and I are part of a, uh, a virtual currency task force that is put together by the Treasury Secretary that includes the Fed and FinCEN. Um, and we have already had our first meeting, and beginning meeting to set out some work streams. We will have more to come. And it just so happens that I'm actually meeting with FinCEN's uh, virtual currency team this week on a previously scheduled meeting uh, to get some introductory discussion started that we of cooperation between our agencies. Mm -hmm. And so I look forward to actually asking them this question as well. Okay. Uh, and I would just say to both of you, to the extent uh, that you have a role to play and you lack the present authorities to do so, I, I would love to know about that if you determine that is necessary because uh, I get a, uh, my sense of cryptocurrencies uh, largely driven uh, to uh, evade U.S. sanctions and to undermine uh, sovereign currencies. Both of them are a challenge to the national interest of the United States. Let me ask you this. With, we've seen a dramatic increase in the number of initial coin offerings where private companies are using digital tokens to raise money instead of going through the capital markets. The Wall Street Journal reported that initial coin offerings grew from about $96 million in 2016 to over $4 billion in 2017. Many of these ICOs are relying on celebrity promoters to gin up the sales. For example, last year, Floyd Mayweather, the boxer, used Instagram to promote the purchase of Centra tokens. Now, I've done extensive work on consumer protections in the prepaid card space, where we've seen celebrities like the Kardashians use their status to sell products that come at a steep cost to consumers. And this feels eerily similar to that. Uh, just the next avenue of exploitation. And I worry about unsuspecting investors that don't have the resources to understand the true risks. What can the SEC do to better protect investors who may be persuaded by celebrity promoters to purchase tokens offered in initial coin offerings without fully understanding the risks? Uh, Senator, I'm not going to comment on, on a specific instance, but some time ago, 
we put out an alert that said, if you are promoting securities, you're taking on securities law liability. I'm, I believe that that has tamped down some of this endorsement activity. Um, I will say it again right here. If you are promoting securities, you're potentially taking on securities law liability. Uh, well, let me ask you, I, I, hope, I appreciate that, and I hope that you will think about doing more to protect consumers. Can you walk us through why the SEC at this point is not comfortable with approving e ETFs with significant investments in cryptocurrencies? Our, our ETF product space is largely a retail product space, and we've made it clear to the marketplace that there are a couple of issues with having an ETF that's based on a cryptocurrency. They go to price discovery, custody, and you know, some other issues around volatility. We've let the industry know that those are issues that are of concern to us and that we don't want to approve an ETF product with a cryptocurrency underlier until we can get comfortable with those issues. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Moran. Mr. Chairman, thank you very much. I'm sorry you both have to crane to your next to the left so, uh, so hard to, to have a conversation with me, uh, but I'm delighted to be back on the committee, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much. Um, let me first start uh, by suggesting to you that if you have suggestions, I will probably not have the chance to see you in the Financial Services Appropriations Subcommittee before we take a look at FY19. Assuming that we're successful in the next few days on FY18 and budget caps, uh, we'll have an opportunity to reconsider spending levels for FY18. Uh, you've made your request uh, through the budgetary process and appearance before our subcommittee, but if there are priorities in which as we go back to uh, potentially increase funding in any levels of uh, jurisdiction within FSGG, uh, I would welcome your input as to what it is the highest priority. I heard uh, the commentary earlier the, in regard to one of the questions, I think, to, to Senator Reid was, uh, the, the, the hiring freeze has created challenges. I don't know that we can overcome that, but if it is personnel in any particular way uh, or other things, it would be useful for me to know. Thank you very much. And our, I didn't want to get ahead of the process. And Our, our FY19 request re reflects the, the sentiment I've expressed today. I don't know that we'll see the FY19 request before we are taking a look at the potential increase in funding for FY18, uh, depending on when the President's budget is released. Uh, but I would offer that. It doesn't need to be today if there's uh, any suggestions you'd like to convey to me. Um, the issue of, you may have answered this question just now with Senator Menendez, uh, Mr. Chairman, Chairman Clayton, but doesn't the, doesn't, you indicated why you were reluctant or unwilling at the moment to, to approve an ETF uh, proposal. But doesn't uh, ETFs, just as options do uh, on its exchange, reduce the, mitigate the concerns, reduce the volatility and increase price discovery and reduce risk? So additional products, my question really is, don't additional products help alleviate some of the challenges we face? Or is Bitcoin or cryptocurrency so unique that it's different than other uh, items that are traded on exchanges? Yeah, I, I think that the CFTC product has that effect. It's largely an institutional product, and you can take both sides of the market, and you know it gives people a chance. 
ETFs, you, you can take both sides of an ETF, but predominantly they're offered for a long investor, someone who wants exposure to the rise and fall of Bitcoin or other currencies just as it would. Um, and that's a, that, that, that's a different dynamic than a futures product. And we've, we've long taken um, an investor protection view of approving those types of products, um, which is embodied in our liquidity, custody, and pricing rules. If we, if we get comfortable with those rules, then we can move forward. Very good. Um, let me raise a different topic than, than cryptocurrency. Uh, one of the things that uh, I've tried to pay attention to, and often in, in uh, cooperation with the senator from Mexico, Senator Udall, is trying to moder modernize uh, our IT system, particularly within the federal government. Uh, and you indicated, uh, Chairman Clayton, uh, about the $500 million loss in a Japanese uh, cryptocurrency in your, uh, in your written testimony. Um, we've now passed, as part of the National Defense Authorization Bill, uh, what, what's been labeled as MGT Act. It's the Modernizing Government uh, Technology. Uh, and what it does is create a fund for uh, federal agencies uh, to rid themselves of their legacy technologies uh, and have access to dollars to replace that legacy. It encourages moving to the cloud, uh, again, with the opportunities for us to have better technologies and safer uh, technology systems to reduce our vulnerabilities. Uh, I just would uh, encourage you, you have a lot at risk uh, in the safety and security of the data that you hold. Uh, and I'd welcome your reassurances that uh, I'm sure you will tell me that you're spending many millions of dollars and working diligently and you have the right personnel in place. But I would guess if we ask agencies of the federal government who have been hacked themselves and whose uh, data has been uh, released, they would have told us the same thing prior to that occurring to them. Uh, I'd be... Uh, First of all, delighted to be reassured that uh, we will not be reading in tomorrow's paper or next month's papers that uh, there's been a hack at uh, CFTC or uh, SEC. And then secondly, I just would offer you the opportunity to take a look at that legislation and see how it might be of benefit to your agencies uh, and to suggest any uh, ideas that you would have for what Congress can do to further strengthen uh, cybersecurity within your worlds. <coughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Mr. Chairman, thank you. Thank you, Senator Cortez Masto. Thank you. Gentlemen, thank you. Uh, I apologize. I've been had another committee hearing going on at the same time, but I appreciate your uh, written comments and uh, the, the conversation today. Uh, is so important. Uh, and um, as somebody who uh, was the Attorney General of the State of Nevada and worked on consumer protection issues, Obviously, weeding out any type of fraud is, is important in this space as well. So let, let me, though, start with um, a couple of questions I, that I have. Um, I understand that companies that originated outside the cryptocurrency space, like Kodak and Burger King, have recently jumped into the cryptocurrency space. Um, however, some critics have warned that companies are using blockchain as an opportunistic venture to pump up stock prices without having a clear business plan. Uh, one company, Long Island Ice Tea, I understand, changed its name to Long Blockchain and watched its stock soar. So are, are you concerned that companies may be utilizing um, blockchain as a scheme to pump up their stock prices? And I'm going to just open it up to both of you. 
The, the short answer is yes. Um, the longer answer is um, I've put out a warning in this space, I've, and I've put out a warning to securities lawyers as well, which is nobody should think it's okay to change your name to something that involves blockchain when you have no real underlying blockchain business plan and try to sell securities based on the hype around blockchain. And when you say you put out a warning, what does that mean specifically? What did, what, uh, what we did put you out do? A, a, pub, published the, it's on the SEC website. I mm -hmm. made a speech regarding this. Um, but this is, this is an area of concern to us. When, anytime there's something new that people seek to you know, raise the value of their securities without the underlying goods being there right. is problematic. Thank you, Senator. Mm -hmm. So, so, as you know, the jurisdiction of the CFTC and the, and the SEC is slightly different in this regard. And so uh, Chairman Clayton is rightfully concerned with uh, initial coin offerings that are misrepresenting the affiliation, whether it be with Kodak or, or otherwise. We, we focus on uh, fraud and manipulation broadly in instruments where there is wild claims for them. And I, I mentioned earlier a case we recently brought Again, on a Long Island firm called My Big Coin, which turned out to be My Big Con, there, there was nothing there. They were taking people's money and not investing in, in anything other than their own jewelry and houses and fancy cars and this kind of thing. We've been a very aggressive in, in our, using our enforcement authority. We've recently brought three uh, cases just, this, uh, just last month alone. I've said there will be more, um, and we are looking into this. Uh, and, and monitoring markets very carefully. We believe that our big task is bringing enforcement cases and letting people see that, as well as consumer education, which I've also Yeah, because it has a deterrent effect. You it hope does it does, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Um, it's also been reported that more than 3 million Bitcoins have been stolen. Uh, that is about 14% of the Bitcoins, or 1 in 7 Bitcoins, stolen. And on January uh, 26, CoinCheck, a Japanese currency exchange, was hacked. In minutes, 430 million was lost to hackers. This follows another theft of more than 500 million from another exchange, um, Mount Gox. If people put money into a stock or bond and it was stolen, they would have help. For example, the federal government is uh, still trying to help investors recover the money stolen by Bernie Madoff. When virtual currencies are stolen by hackers, what can buyers do to get their money back, if anything? This is, this is a very good mm -hmm. point. And it's one that we've emphasized in our investor alerts, that when you engage in investing online with an offshore entity, the chances that we can do anything practical to get your money back are very, very low. In our futures market, for example, we have what we call system safeguards, requirements that futures exchanges have cyber protections in place, and they adopt best practices. For these underlying spot markets, which we don't regulate, we don't have the authority to require them to have cyber safeguards in place. Right. And uh, you know, a lot of these companies are young, they're startups, they're, they're focused on putting what resources they have into developing their technology. And in the case of some of the cases you mentioned, what I understand was the cyber protections just weren't there. Now, I know that the JFSA has been aggressive on this. We've had some conversations with them. We've asked questions, what are they doing about it? But unfortunately, the theft has already happened. Right. Um, and so now I know that this the is a problem. These underlying <laughs> on this exchanges, while we do have enforcement authority, 
We don't have the same reg regulatory authority that we have in the markets that we oversee. That's our day job, as, as one of your colleagues mentioned earlier. And, and so, therefore, this is a gap. Yeah. Or, or, or the same kind of protection rules like custody. Right. It was gone. Yeah, so it's the old axiom, buyer beware. I mean, so around this space, a lot of education is important. I, I would imagine from all of the federal agencies to buyer so they know um, until something else can be done, which I think we're still trying to figure that out. I notice my time is up. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Senator. Uh, I had not planned on having a second round, but I have agreed to, have, to uh, allow Senator Shelby and Senator Warren to each have one brief question. Senator Shelby. Oh, I want to get in the area of what's on a lot of people's minds today, and I know you don't control it, uh, the stock market. You know, what goes up comes down, as we all know, and we don't know when and so forth. Uh, is this a, perhaps more than an ordinary correction, or do you have a, a judgment on that at all? Chairman. So your, your question is exactly the question I asked my staff and some of my colleagues okay. across the federal government, um, because we should be asking those questions. Um, this by this morning, there was nothing to indicate that any of our systems didn't function as they were expected to function yesterday. Um, there was a, this was the largest volume since November 2016. Um, there was a significant price change, um, but it was not a price. We have, do you mind? We have two types of limits. We have single stock limits, and then we have market limits, the circuit breakers. Neither one of those were hit in any great detail. At the any great detail, the single stock was nine. The mark, the circuit breakers didn't get hit. Um, so as I sit here today, there's nothing that came out of this that concerns me from a functioning standpoint. Um, but days like yesterday, our job is to look at them. From, from a regulatory standpoint, are you saying that uh, you don't see anything amiss? Yes. From a regulatory standpoint? Yes. And, and, you, and, and, you can't control what goes up and goes down. <laughs> but uh, is, 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 what spooked the markets? Is it profit-taking, perhaps? Is it a whiff of maybe inflation out there because... Uh, people that watch the markets and participate in the markets uh, see uh, that the Fed is beginning to raise interest rates, dealing with price stability as they see it. And the Fed has information perhaps we don't have. Uh, the, the economy is hot, unemployment's low, uh, so forth. There's a combination of all, or, or can we really say? Well, I can't really say. Because I, 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 you know, there are a lot of opinions on those things. Our job is is to look at the functioning, absolutely, and, and look at the systemic risks. That's right. And I'm and I'm asking myself, is there anything that happened yesterday that ha gives me a different view of systemic risk than I had the day before? And so far, no. But that's a question I ask myself almost every day. Of course, we all know that when the market is going up, people are elated. That's natural. Mm -hmm. When it's going down, uh, some people profit, but not a lot of people are elated. Is that fair? There. You have any comment, uh, Mr. Chairman? Well, I, I'm just smiling because just a recollection of, of a, a, a saying that a mentor of mine who actually was my introduction into the financial markets used to say, 
when, when I would ask him, who was an old hand in the markets, what drove the market up yesterday or down, he'd say, oh, it was up? Oh, more, more people bought than sold. Oh, it was down? More people <laughs> sold and bought. And, and, and we, we laughed, but he, what he said to me, he said, you know, when you listen to the pundits and they say, well, the market was up yesterday because of this, mm-hmm. that may have been why or may have not been why, but the, but the reporters or, or, the, or the pundit needed a reason. So they pick something out, and that becomes the reason for the day. And I, I don't mean to be facetious, but markets are very, very complex, Absolutely. very, very complex. Very much. And, and sometimes it's oversimplifying, and, and you hear it on the news, you hear it by people that are stock pickers, and they say, well, it was because of this. Well, I don't know how anybody really knows. Now, if there are fundamental moves, fundamental changes, that's where we have to do. And I, and I share Chairman Clayton's view is our job is to look at the structural Absolutely. underpinnings and see whether there's anything that's not functioning. See if the fundamentals are sound. See if the fundamentals are sound. So you won't be surprised to know that we had a late night last night and early morning this morning checking in with our exchanges to make sure that things are in order, making sure that the margin levels were held, to make sure there was no significant margin breaches. And, and I can say that the system held. The system worked as it was designed to do. The margin levels worked as they were designed to work. And so... The, 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 the right systems, the right policies are in place, but the markets are always evolving, always organic, and we need to, that's why we need to stay very close to them. It, the market always corrects. The question is, is this ordinary, maybe not an ordinary correction, but is it a correction the market will correct itself, and we go from there. Is that fair? Yes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Warren. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. So I want to go back to virtual currency, and I want to ask about initial coin offerings, ICOs. Some ICOs raise money for legitimate companies, but others we know are just Ponzi schemes. And many of the investors in ICOs are just everyday Americans, lured by aggressive marketing, promising very high returns. In fact, it is now so bad that Facebook recently banned all ads for virtual currency-related products and ICOs because there were so many, quote, deceptive and misleading advertising that targeted regular consumers. So I just want to ask a little bit of question around how we make ICOs safer. Chairman Clayton, the SEC evidently recognized the risk So it announced last summer that it would consider certain coins to be securities under the Securities Act, meaning that they have to be registered with the commission and comply with disclosure requirements. In 2017, companies raised more than $4 billion in ICOs. How many of those companies registered their ICO with the SEC? Not one. Not one. And as of today, how many companies have registered for upcoming ICOs? Not one. Not one. So we're still at zero. Can you just say a word about why that's so? Yeah. Okay. I, don't, I don't think the gatekeepers that we rely on to assist us in making sure our securities laws have, are followed have done their job. We've made it clear what the law is. As, I, as I've said many times, there are thousands and thousands of private placements that go on every year in the U.S. We want them to go on. We want people to raise capital, but we want them to do it right. right. What ICOs do is they take the 
disclosure light benefits of a private placement and then add to it the public general solicitation and retail investor promise of a secondary market without registering with us. And folks somehow got comfortable that this was new and it was okay and it was not a security, it was just some other way to raise money. Well, I disagree with them. So it is not new, it is, or it is new, but it is not okay and it is not another way to raise money. Correct. I, I am understanding you to say it is a violation of the law. Yes. You know, registration really matters. When companies don't register their tokens as securities, they can hide information, and the SEC does not have the information it needs yeah. to am, monitor this market. I am perfectly happy for these people to do private placements, but do them right. Don't, don't try and do it as a private placement, but get all the benefits of a public And then offer. lever over yeah. into a public offer. And do offer. all the other shenanigans that are Well, good. So I, should I take today as you're sounding a warning bell for people? Maybe but, they better pay a little closer attention to the law, or the SEC is going to pay closer attention to them? Yes, and it's not the first time, but I really appreciate the opportunity to do it today. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator. <clears throat> and thank you to our witnesses. We appreciate not only your testimony today, but the uh, work that you are doing in this critical area. Uh, I would ask you to get back to me on recommendations as you have, as you refine uh, your evaluation of our current financial legislative system and, and uh, whether we need to provide further clarification from Congress. And with that, this hearing is adjourned. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. This episode was sponsored by EasyDNS.com and featured content provided by CoinCenter.org and C-SPAN.org. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. See you next time.